It's the Stitch in Haste podcast. Commentary, rants, and rebuttals from the world's foremost gay, libertarian, econo-blogger. Recorded at the center of the universe, New York City. Law, politics, economics, religion, gay rights, foreign affairs, science, culture, humor, and, of course, Diamond the Dog. My name is Kip. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Stitch and Haste podcast. I've been away for a couple of weeks. I apologize. The topic this time is why Diamond is a libertarian. I'm actually not sure whether Diamond is a libertarian. I do think dogs are Lockeans. I think that dogs have a very Lockean notion of property rights. This is my toy. This is my bowl. This is my food. This is my sleeping space. I drooled on it. I added my value to it so it becomes mine. I I honestly believe dogs think that way. New York City, of course, has a dog license law. And Diamond's dog license is going to expire at the end of this month. And I just realized this about a week ago. And in the past, I remembered that the renewal form, which is sent automatically, usually came well before the month that the license expired. That meant that I would get the renewal well into March, mid-March or even late March. But I never got one. It got lost in the mail, whatever. So I figured, okay, I have to call the licensing bureaucracy to get her uh, to get a new renewal form. So I look on all the paperwork that I've gotten from the city over the years. There's no phone number anywhere on her current license, any of the paperwork. I go onto the Google to try to find a phone number, and I find the webpage for Animal Control, which is part of the health department. Guess what? There's, there's no phone number. So reluctantly, I did what apparently I was supposed to do, which was call 311. If you're not familiar with 311, it's the non-emergency universal phone number for New York City. So I call 311, and it pans out exactly the way I thought it was going to pan out. I get an operator who says, you know, how can I help you? I said, I never got my renewal for my dog license. And she says almost with a, with a very loud sigh of relief, dog licensing, as if that's an easy one. She was happy that she got an easy one. Do you want to apply for a dog license? I said, no, I just told you, I have a dog, she has a license, and I just need to renew it. And you could tell that she was reading down a computer screen. Dog license renewals are typically mailed out six weeks before the expiration of the license. And I said, well, yes, I know that. That's why I'm calling you. Her license is expiring in three weeks, not six weeks. So she sounded a little befuddled. And she said, well, okay, I will transfer you to animal control within the Department of Health which was where I wanted to go anyway and where I would have gone if they had bothered anywhere to provide a phone number for that purpose instead of making me go through this extra layer of 311. So she transfers me to animal control. I I have to go through the whole thing again about the situation and wouldn't you know the answer. You I mean if you're a libertarian you know what the answer resolution of the paradox was. Of course it didn't get lost in the mail. It never got sent because after a little hemming and hawing I got them to finally admit their computers have been down for a month. They haven't been sending out any license renewals to anyone for several weeks. You would think, first of all, they could tell the 311 people that, or you'd think maybe they could put out a press release, say, or you could do what Lewis Black pointed out and send out a mailer telling people 
that the license renewals aren't coming, like with the tax rebates, right? The, the, the IRS has to send out mailers to tell people that the check is coming. So they and and they have to spend millions of dollars doing that. You would think that the city maybe could send out a postcard, assuming that they have at least the address, the names and addresses on file. I guess my point is simply that this is yeah. You want to say a typical bureaucracy? The government, the liberals and conservatives think can do everything better, whether it's healthcare or education or anything. But something as simple as having an online renewal form, as simple as being able to pay online or accept credit cards. It's, the, it's one of the few checks that I have to write. I'm at the point now where I write maybe three checks a year. And one of them is to have to write this check for $8.50 to the Department of Animal Control to renew Diamond's license because they don't accept credit cards. But just the idea that an entire bureaucracy, even if it's a puny little bureaucracy like dog licensing, could just be down, offline, for a month. And they wouldn't bother to tell anybody. And they'd wait and have to have people man the phones, not to mention the 311 people, and then have to admit sort of reluctantly, oh yeah, our computer it's just symbolic of the idea that government is perfect. Government is not perfect. Government is human being. If they can't even do something like dog licensing, if they can't even keep that bureaucracy running construction, how about the story about the cranes, the falling cranes? That's gotten worse. Now there's all kinds of stories about the lack of inspections for the cranes, you know, about the crane accident we had in New York. The FAA, which had nothing to do with safety. These planes were not unsafe. Just the next time you think about how, when you hear a politician say how great the government can do something and why are we, this is too important to leave to the private sector. We have to have government do it. And again, that's just an anecdote. It's just symbolic, but the principle remains. Of course, New York not only has a dog license law, but it also has a dog leash law. And there's nothing facially abominable about leash laws from a libertarian perspective. They can be excessive and oppressive, but per se, there's nothing wrong with having a leash law. About a year ago, though, there was a fascinating little intergovernmental kerfuffle here in New York regarding the leash laws. The Parks Commissioner issued a press release that the informal policy of not enforcing the leash laws in New York City parks in the evenings would now become an official formal policy. And the leash laws were effectively repealed in New York City parks, at least in certain parks in certain areas, from, I believe the hours were from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. A local civic group decided to sue the Parks Department because they noted, quite rightly I think, that, hold on, who the heck is the Parks Commissioner to repeal a duly enacted law in the city of New York. The Parks Commissioner doesn't have the authority to just say, we're not going to enforce a law in New York City parks. He can't say, well, we're going to repeal, dare I say, nullify the leash law in New York City parks any more than he can say that he's not going to enforce the drug laws in parks or the rape laws. If you have a law, if you have a leash law that covers the jurisdiction of New York City, that's got to apply to New York City parks, one would think, unless you're a bureaucrat. So there was a lawsuit and Eventually, I think what happened was they did it the right way. And as I recall, 
the city council delegated, formally delegated the authority to the parks commissioner, authority that he did not have. Bottom line was he got what he wanted, and the leash laws now do not apply in certain parks, in certain areas, from 9 to 9. I'm actually opposed to this idea. I think this idea is idiotic. My point really is simply that, again, as an anecdote, you see that when you have a bureaucrat, whether it's the parks commissioner, whether it's the board of education, whether it's a county sheriff, when someone in the government has a fiefdom, they tend to overestimate the power that they have as the head of their bureaucracy. And I just find it mind-boggling that a parks commissioner would think, A, that he can just declare a law inapplicable in his parks, and two, and this is something I say quite often in many contexts, don't these people have lawyers? I know the city has a lawyer, the corporation council. Does not the parks department have an in-house counsel that he could ask and say, hey, do I have the authority to say we're not going to enforce a law in a New York City park? Why just go ahead and summarily issue a press release and act as if you are an absolute divine right ruler over your fiefdom? Who could possibly think that way except a government bureaucrat? Just a footnote to this story, I want to read something to you about this. I'm going to quote a little bit verbatim. NYC Dog, an umbrella group for many dog enthusiasts, countered that off-leash hours would have to continue unless the city was willing to build more enclosed dog runs and other canine-only exercise areas. Despite the fact that you pay to have a dog, you have, you have to pay a dog license, assuming the computers are running, there is no right to have a dog run. Note the arrogance, the presumptuousness of the dog owners here. They have a right to have an unleashed dog environment. And the city, therefore, must either allow them to let their dogs loose in public parks after hours, or the city, at taxpayer expense, must provide dog runs. As much as I love Diamond, I am a consistent libertarian, and I don't see anywhere that there is a right to have a dog run. I don't see where there is a right to compel people who do not have dogs to pay through their tax dollars to build dog runs for dog owners. If you're so desperate to have a dog run for your dog, there are private kennels, there are private doggy daycare centers. I know, I send Diamond to one every so often. That's just part of the cost of having a dog. You want to have a dog and you feel that the dog has, should be entitled to a certain quality of life, a certain quality of food, a certain quality of care, and a certain quality of exercise, well, you have to pay for that. But there is certainly no such thing as a right to a taxpayer-provided dog run. That is absolutely absurd. The green space where I walk Diamond, meanwhile, is not really a park, and it's certainly not covered by this 9 to 9 off-leash rule. It's called the East River Walk. It basically just runs along the East River. I live right next to the East River. And of course, I walk Diamond at 9.30. And of course, there is one jackass. I call him Poodle Brain, who has two poodles. But these aren't poodles. These are poodles. They're huge. Both of them are at least twice Diamond size. They are both completely unsocialized. This guy is under the impression that he's allowed to let these dogs run off the leash. And they harass Diamond almost every time that we encounter each other. These dogs are they're not vicious, they're not mean, but they're completely unsocialized, and Diamond has her issues, as you may know, and, you know, she, Diamond isn't a vicious dog, but she's not really keen on the idea of playing with unleashed dogs. They scare her, they intimidate her, and I've tried nicely, not so nicely, and flat out threateningly to try to get this guy to acknowledge that the rules do not apply to this stretch of green space, which is really just a walk, it's not even a park, and his 
his response has basically been something that I don't feel comfortable repeating here on this podcast because then I couldn't label it as clean. So this is another externality of having what I think is just a fundamentally idiotic rule. Forget about how it came to pass with the Parks Commissioner. I just think it's a dumb idea. Another part of having these kind of laws is that people seem to think, well, if a law applies in one context, it must apply to another context. And this guy doesn't want to hear it. He has a God-given constitutional right to let his dogs off the leash. And the whole rest of the neighborhood, and especially me and Diamond, can just kiss his ass. That's the difference between libertarianism and anarchy, is whether or not you will let your dog off a leash at 9 o'clock. I think that's a pretty good litmus test. He's the toughest dog on the mountain. No way. Everybody knows that Sylvester is the toughest dog in South Park. He's not meaner than Sparky. Oh, yeah? Let's see. Hey, Sylvester! Sparky will kick his ass. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing something to his ass. He's not kicking his ass, but he's definitely doing something to his ass. Sparky! Bad dog! (laughs) What? Yeah, dude. I think your dog is gay. What do you mean? That dog is a gay homosexual. He's just confused. I think the other dog's the one that's confused. Sick! Shut up, dude! Diamond is a mutt. That's not an insult. I think that's a compliment. She's officially listed as an American Staffordshire Terrier. There is a great deal of debate whether there is any genetic difference between, or any other difference between, an American Staffordshire Terrier and so-called pit bull. As for breed-specific legislation in which a jurisdiction declares a breed of dog, typically the American Pit Bull Terrier or the American Staffordshire Terrier, to be, quote, inherently vicious, close quote. These laws are an abomination to libertarians, not so much because there's a right to have a vicious dog. I would submit that there is not a right to have a vicious dog, just as there is no right to be reckless general. The problem is that no dog is genetically predisposed to violence. It's just a fiction. Go to the Google and research it as an independent observer. Look at the science. Look at the veterinary science. Look at the genetic science. There's no such thing as a breed that is genetically predisposed to violence. It is also an urban legend about how pit bull jaws lock. It's a complete fantasy. It's a a fraud. It's a lie. And again, if you do objective, unbiased research, you'll see that that's the case. The libertarian abomination regarding breed-specific legislation is the fact that these laws are objectively irrational. Even if you presume that the standard of judicial review for a law should not always be heightened scrutiny, strict scrutiny, which is what libertarians generally believe, even if you believe the current framework regarding equal protection and substantive due process and fundamental rights is the right one, and that any right or any law that does not infringe upon equal protection or a fundamental right should be subject to only rational basis review. Well, rational basis review still means that the government has to have a rational basis for passing a law. The law must be rationally related to a legitimate government interest. There is no rational basis for breed-specific legislation. Those 
those laws are objectively, demonstrably irrational because they have no basis in science. It is not the proper role of a legislature to say that pit bulls are vicious. A, the legislature are not vets, and B, it's simply not true. The legislature saying that pit bulls are vicious does not make it true. I have very little more to say on that except to point you to the chain of blog posts that I have written on this subject. I did a little research in preparation of this podcast, and it turns out that the one case that I cited about Toledo's breed-specific legislation, where an intermediate Ohio court declared the law unconstitutional for exactly that reason, they said that there's clearly no objectively admissible evidence to suggest that pit bull and pit bull-like breeds are, quote, inherently vicious, therefore the law fails rational basis review. Well, it turns out that case got overturned by the Ohio Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denied cert, and it doesn't surprise me at all. It was nice to see that at least one of the justices on the Ohio Supreme Court concurred only in the judgment and wrote separately to say that, in fact, yes, there's no such thing really as a inherently vicious dog. There's only such a thing as an inherently vicious person, and the problem is not with dogs, but with the dog owners, but he still saw enough of a connection, a correlation, to concur in the judgment. I've made the analogy to gay marriage. This idea that legislatures should be allowed to guess, I don't think that's a proper function of a legislature to just guess and make it up as they go along and think that, well, maybe pit bulls are inherently dangerous, even though there's absolutely no objective evidence to suggest that, or that maybe there's some vague benefit to limiting marriage to only heterosexual couples. We can just guess. And then on top of that, that it is the duty of a, of a court to show not even great deference, but essentially absolute deference to the legislature, even when the legislature does something that is unarguably, objectively shown to be irrational and unjustifiable, that cannot possibly be right. It's not right in the context of breed-specific legislation. It's not right in the context of same-sex marriage. Judges are abdicating their solemn duty to hold legislatures accountable. That's not serving as a super legislature. That's doing your job. Even rational basis review is, in fact, rational basis review. And when a legislature acts irrational, it is the solemn, sacred duty of judges to stop them and to overturn those laws. This has been the Stitch in Haste podcast. Thanks for listening. For more commentary, please visit my blog, A Stitch in Haste, at www.kipesquire.com. That's www.kipesquire.com. You can also email me at kipesquire at yahoo.com or leave me a voicemail at 646 646- Three eight six nine nine six four. Thanks for listening.